Wild Interest is a podcast produced by kids for curious minds of all ages. Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of Wild Interest. I'm Nicole. And I'm Evan. And And we're we're your hosts. When we came up with the idea for the show, well, actually I did. Hey! We wanted it to be fun to make. And fun to listen to. In each episode, we explore things that we are curious about. We are really excited about how this episode turned out, and we hope you like it too. In this episode, Evan goes deep on his favorite forest creature, Bigfoot. Nicole learns about leap years. Spoiler alert, 2024 is a leap year. We get the buzz on beeswax. And our reporters on the ground in Brooklyn get to know the wild parrots who live at Brooklyn's Greenwood Cemetery. You also get to hear the very first editions of My Favorite Sound, Mabuhai Moments, and Grandparent Stories. So sit back on your couch with your favorite double chocolate cookies and listen in. Did you know that 2024 is a leap year? That means it is going to have an extra day. Most years have 365 days, but leap years are special. They have 366. The extra day comes in February. February normally has 28 days, but in leap years, we add another day, February 29th. It is called a leap day. How often do leap years come around? Every four years. So what if you're born on a leap day? Do you have to wait four years for your next birthday? Good question. We heard about this 28-year-old leap year baby who had fun on both leap year and non-leap year birthdays. On years where there is no February 29th, he has a two-day birthday festival. But in leap years, he celebrates by having a party in the style of the age he would be if you just counted all of his leap year birthdays. So when he turned 28, he had a bouncy castle, long games, balloons, and streamers like he was seven years old. Aw, why couldn't I have been born on a leap day? Why do we have leap years anyway? What's the point? The reason is that without leap years, our calendar starts to drift out of sync with the seasons. It shifts by, you guessed it, one day every four years. After 700 years, our season would be completely out of sync. For those of us in the Northern Hemisphere, that would mean December would be in the summer and July would be in the winter. 700 years sounds like an awfully long time. What's the big deal? It became a very big deal in ancient Rome when their major holidays started to fall in the wrong seasons. Imagine an ice festival in the middle of summer or a harvest festival in the dead of winter. As you can see, it was a very big problem. To fix this, in 46 BC, over 2,000 years ago, the emperor Julius Caesar adopted leap years from the Egyptian calendar. He made a few changes and called it the Julian calendar. I know I'm going to regret asking this, but how did humans figure out leap years? We aren't sure exactly who figured out leap years. It might have been the Babylonians. It might have been the ancient Greeks. We do know around 100 BC, the Greek astronomer Hipparchus published a book entitled On the Length of a Year, where he calculated that a year is a little longer than 365 days. He tracked the sun's movement in the sky for a whole year and calculated that it took 365 days, 5 hours, and 48 minutes to return to the same position in the sky. His calculations were actually pretty good. Even though Hipparchus thought the sun was orbiting around the Earth, his calculation of the length of a year was almost exactly the same as ours today. A year is one complete trip around the sun. And that trip takes the Earth roughly 365 days and 6 hours. 
Since our calendar year doesn't add those extra six hours, we start the new year six hours too soon every year. After four years, this adds up to 24 hours or one day. So we add a leap year to make things match back up. This keeps our calendar almost perfectly in sync with the seasons. Okay, but I have one more question. Why are leap years called leap years? That's because they cause dates to leap by one day. Normally, the date moves forward by one day of the week each year. If your birthday was on a Monday last year, it will be on a Tuesday this year. But in leap years, because of the extra day, dates move forward two days. So, if your birthday was on a Monday in a leap year, it would be on a Wednesday next year. Any more questions? No further questions. I love it when you say that. And now, for this episode's one and only riddle, I am a fruit, a bird, and a nationality. What am I? Stay tuned for the answer. Cryptids. Evan's Cryptid Corner. Today, I want to talk about Bigfoot, also known as Sasquatch. Bigfoot is a human-like creature that may or may not live in North America, with most alleged sightings taking place in the Pacific Northwest. Bigfoot is believed to be between 6 to 9 feet in height, covered in dark hair with very long arms, and, of course, extremely big feet. The existence of Bigfoot has not been proven, despite thousands of reported sightings and other evidence. Today we'll talk about the evidence that's out there, and even speak to one of the foremost Bigfoot experts in the country. Evidence that Bigfoot may in fact exist comes in these three categories. The first is sound recordings, consisting of three different types, growls, whoops, and chatter. Have a listen to this recording made in the Sierra Mountains of California in 1971. What do you think? The second is photographic evidence. The most famous is the Bluff Creek footage, a film taken in 1967 by two men in North California. In the footage, you can clearly see a Bigfoot walking in an open clearing. Although this video has been criticized and attacked by skeptics as being a hoax, a Disney producer at the time said it was impossible that it could be a costume given the state of stagecraft technology at the time. While both of these forms of evidence, sound, and video recordings are interesting, we are going to focus today on the third type of evidence, footprints. Unlike sound and video, which can be faked using technology, footprints are squished into actual dirt in the actual world. By pouring plaster into a footprint, researchers can recreate the shape of the foot that made the print. Thousands of plaster casts exist of footprints thought to be made by a Sasquatch. Dr. Jeff Meldrum is a professor of anatomy and anthropology at Idaho State University, and his laboratory has one of the largest collections of big footprints in the world. Dr. Meldrum is an expert in the evolution of human anatomy that allows us to walk on two legs. He edited the textbook from biped to strider used in college classrooms. He joined me to talk about Bigfoot. 
My name is Jeff Meldrum. I teach human gross anatomy in the health professions programs we have here at Idaho State, things like physical therapy, occupational therapy, physician's assistants. And then I do research on the anthropological side, physical anthropology, in the way we have evolved adaptations for walking on two legs, particularly. I asked him what made him decide to start researching Bigfoot. He told me the story of the morning he came across a set of fresh Sasquatch tracks. I became interested in Sasquatch as a result of witnessing a long line of footprints, fresh, fresh footprints in the ground back in 1996. And so there was this real tug of war in my mind <laughs> between, you know, the doubting side and then the, oh my gosh, a Sasquatch actually walked by here last night. <laughs> you know, they really do exist. It was that aha moment when suddenly now um, it was more than just a picture in a book or on a TV screen. Here were these actual footprints in the ground, as fresh as could be. And so I was in a very good position, given my experience from observation of primates and humans walking, uh, electromyographic studies, studying the, the function of the muscles, looking at the skeletal morphology, interpreting fossils of humans and human ancestors. And uh, all of these things really put me in a good position to make, a, I think, a significant contribution to the study of the footprints. It's interesting when you look at some of my predecessors, those professors that did become most involved in this were also anatomists and focused on the footprints. Dr. Grover Krantz and Dr. John Napier are two prominent examples Dr. Napier, when he concluded in his book that Sasquatch must exist, he said, after all, something must be making these footprints. And he was convinced that they weren't hoaxed, at least not all of them were hoaxed. Well, there are many hoax big footprints. Dr. Meldrum's collection of footprints contains many samples that he believes would be extremely difficult to impossible to fake. The toes grip the earth the print shapes change when walking or running. Some even have skin ridges similar to fingerprints. Dr. Meldrum believes it is impossible to look at the footprints and rule out the possibility that they are genuine. He believes that research should continue, as he has continued the work of scientists before him. Dr. Krantz had experienced a lot of ridicule and a lot of resistance to his interest in this topic. And it had cost him professionally. It had delayed promotion. He was the brunt of jokes and so forth. And I remember kind of sitting there with these two little imps on my shoulders, one whispering in the ear over here saying, well, do you really want to do something like Dr. Krantz? You, you know, look at what happened to him. And the other imp was saying, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> How can you not study this? What an interesting question. This has got to be one of the biggest questions in anthropology today. And here you're looking at this fresh evidence right here in the ground, you know. And obviously that one won out in the argument. And uh, there have been um, consequences. I've experienced some of the same sorts of negative things that uh, Dr. Krantz had to deal with. But at this point, you know, I've gotten past that, I feel. It's just a matter of trying to get the message out. I mean, to keep the door open so that there is the opportunity for other 
young scholars coming up in the ranks to venture into this arena and look at this question to more legitimize it so it isn't completely relegated to the tabloid and the the sensational. Talking to Dr. Meldrum, I thought it was brave of him to do this research, to listen to the imp on his shoulder that told him to follow his curiosity. Bigfoot has made people curious for a long time, and until we find definite proof, one way or the other, the Sasquatch will remain a mystery. I don't mind that so much. I love a good mystery. And I'm not the only one. Here's what Jane Goodall, one of the most famous primate researchers in the world, had to say about Bigfoot. I'm romantic. I would like Bigfoot to exist. I've met people who swear they've seen Bigfoot. And I think the interesting thing is every single continent, there is an equivalent of Bigfoot or Sasquatch. There's the Yeti, there's the Yari in Australia, there's the Chinese wild man, and and on and on and on. And, you know, I've had stories from people who, you have to believe them. So there's something, I don't know what it is. I'm always open-minded. This segment is called My Favorite Sound, where kids from all around the world send in their favorite sounds and we share them with you. If you have a sound that you like, visit our website to see how to get it on the air. This episode we hear from Chanel in Kenya, who loves the sound of elephants. Hi, my name is Chanel from Kabete, Kenya, and I. A sound I love is elephant sound. Nicole, what's your ginormous wax ball doing in the studio? Well, I figured, since you got to talk about your favorite ginormous mythical creature... Weren't you listening? Sasquatch isn't mythical, he's cryptozoological. We don't know if he exists or not. Well, one thing I do know is that I made a basketball-sized ball out of beeswax, one drip of wax at a time. I know, you have been making that thing forever. Why do you like beeswax so much? I don't know, I just do. I like the way it feels, the way it smells, the way it smushes when it's warm. I started making this ball with warm wax from beeswax candles one day and just kept going. You sure did. Look at that thing. I wanted to talk with someone who shares my love for beeswax, so I invited a candle maker to the show. Preparing for the interview, I learned some cool stuff about beeswax. Here we go. No, no, it's really cool. Like, did you know that before electricity, beeswax candles were the best form of lighting money could buy? They burned longer and made way less smoke than other things people burned for light. Beeswax was precious. A pound of it cost eight times more than a pound of honey. Coincidentally, bees have to consume eight or more pounds of honey to make a single pound of beeswax. Scientists studying beeswax today are still mystified by it. Beeswax is very complex, and scientists still haven't identified everything that it is made out of. Last but not least, you might have heard about the wax seals that were used as signatures on important documents throughout history. Well, most of those seals are beeswax, and it turns out they are like time capsules. 
The wax in the seals contains information about plants and flowers and the environment at the time, as well as the fingerprints and some DNA of the people who made the seals. Beeswax seals are an important new field of historical research. Okay, okay, beeswax is cool. Can we listen to the interview? I thought you'd never ask. My name is John Cornblue, and I am the CEO and founder of Blue Corn Beeswax. What do you think special about beeswax candles compared to other types of candles? Beeswax is special for lots of reasons. Everything that bees do is special. Bees are magical creatures, you know, from pollen to honey to wax, all of the things that these creatures make is just so wonderful. And beeswax itself, when burning, is super clean and non-toxic. It also has a very high melt point, which means that if built properly, your beeswax candle will burn slower. It's the premium candle wax. Where do you get the wax for your candles? You know, the process is that a honeybee will build its comb or its home out of beeswax. The wax itself is an excretion. There's wax glands under the wing. And so after the comb is built, uh, honeybees will fill those chambers with honey and then cap it. A beekeeper will come through, pull out the comb, take off the cap only, whip out the honey and put the entire comb intact back into the hive. And so they want the bees focused on honey production, not on wax production. And so we get cappings beeswax from beekeepers and it shows up to us in like 30 pound bricks. And we then will clean or filter that wax Uh, refine it a little bit, totally naturally, for use in candles. How would you refine it? We use a filter press that is also used for cleaning maple syrup. Yeah, and so we get the wax hot, molten, really fluid, and we run it through a filter press, which has like 12 to 15 banks of paper filters. And what comes through on the other side is just a lot cleaner. And thus, when a candle's burning, you won't get that particulate stuck in the wick. And so it makes for a nice, strong, clean burn. What are some things that you really appreciate about bees? You know, bees are a remarkable culture unto themselves. They've got super advanced methods of communication. They work well as a society all these different types of bees within their society have a role to play and they're wildly efficient in everything they do. Is it hard starting your own business? (laughs) Oh my, yeah, really hard. Do you think it was worth it? Oh yeah, without a doubt. In my little small rural southwestern Colorado community, that's how I'm known. I'm the candle guy. The candle maker? Yeah. Butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker? Funny story there. 
I was riding up a chairlift skiing one day a few years ago, and this tourist was riding between my friend and I, and the guy was like, so what do you guys do for a living? And on my left was my friend Jeff, who was a baker. <laughs> and he said, oh, I'm a baker. And then on me, I was like, I'm a candlestick maker. And the guy was like, are you guys for real? Wow. Yeah. It would have been really funny if he was a butcher. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I was waiting for that. And that's the buzz on beeswax. <laughs> <laughs> what did the queen bee say to the naughty bee? Behive yourself. <laughs> Why did the chicken cross the playground to get to the other slide? <laughs> Why do seagulls fly over the sea? Because if they flew over the bay, they'd be bagels. <laughs> Mabuhai, Evan. Mabuhai, Nicole. Mabuhai is a greeting in Tagalog, the main language in the Philippines. We are part Filipino, and one thing about Filipinos is we love to have fun. In Mabuhai moments, we check in with Filipinos living all around the world and ask them what they like to do for fun. Before we get into that, let's introduce the word Mabuhai. We're joined now by a very special guest to discuss the word mabuhay. My name is uh, Ray Donato. It's Raul Donato, but they normally call me Ray. And I represent the Philippine government as the honorary uh, consul general uh, here in Georgia. Thank you very much for speaking with me today and explaining a little bit about the word mabuhay. How do you use the word mabuhay? Mabuhay is a Filipino greeting. So when you are having a dinner party or you are in a uh, uh, celebration, you say mabuhay. And literally, the word mabuhay is like wishing you long life. Buhay in the vernacular, which is called Tagalog, means life. So buhay is life. Mabuhay is like have a long life. Is there a mabuhay philosophy or way of life? Very excellent question. Happiness is inside you. And the Filipino people, because they have been colonized by Spain for 450 years or so, they suffered a lot. They were always fighting for 450 years as Spaniards, basically. I mean, 450 years is a long time. So they decided that why be miserable? Why waste our time? Let's just be happy, whatever conditions we're in, and let's just smile. And so the word mabuhay reflects that. So we became a happy people and smiling people, no matter what the circumstances are. If it's raining or there's a typhoon or there's a hurricane or there's an occupation. Remember, we were also occupied by Japan for five years during World War II. So they, the attitude of the Filipino people 
regardless of the circumstances, they are just going to be happy people. They smile, they laugh a lot. They don't care if it's raining or sunshine or there are some medical issues within the family. They try to make the best out of it. So basically, we're one of the happiest people in the world. Mabuhay! This is Angela in Atlanta, and something I like to do for fun is dancing to my favorite music in the kitchen. Now it's time for Grandparent Stories, our regular segment where we invite kids to interview their grandparents. We love hearing stories from our grandparents and from yours, too. Grandparents, they love you. Grandparents been around a long time Have lots of stories from when they were kids too They love to sit down and tell them to you Hello, this is Esme from Los Angeles, California And today I'm interviewing my grandma, who I call Baby. Hi Baby. thanks for talking with me today Well, you're welcome. I'm so pleased to talk to you. My first question is, when you were a kid, what decade was it, and where did you grow up? Wow. I was born in 1944, which is more than 70 years now. I was born in a province which was part of India, Pakistan, and Afghanistan, a small town named Quetta. What did you call your grandparents? My grandparents were Baba John and Baby John. And that's what we called them. What were they like? My grandmother was very kind. And uh, of course, my grandfather was kind. But you know how men are. They don't want to show their emotions. So he was kind of reserved. But he loved us dearly. Do you remember any stories that your grandparents told you when you were Yeah, my grandparents told me that growing up, they had a lot of siblings living with them. And uh, aunts and uncles, um, they all lived together. So there were too many kids all the time. And they had great fun. What did you do for fun when you were a kid? Oh, we lived very close to the mountains. So we would have friends come over and uh, we would all walk to the mountain and sit on top of near a small kind of a cave. And we would bring like bread and yogurt and some sweets and the thermos of tea, and we would sit and have fun, and then we would walk all the way back home. That sounds so fun. I wish I could do that. Do you remember any songs or lullabies your parents or grandparents would sing to you? Can you sing a little bit of one if you do? So our last question is, do you have any advice for kids about what is important in life? I think the best thing for a child is to be respectful 
to anybody, whether they're young or old, and respect their space and never interfere when they are trying to express themselves because we might not like it or we might not understand, but we should allow them to say what they want. All right. So that's it. Do you have anything else you'd like to say? I just want to say that I love you so much. I love you more. (laughs) Okay. Thanks, baby. Now we hear a special report from Nola and Maxine in Brooklyn, New York. My name is Nola. I'm 12 years old, and I live in Brooklyn with my mom, my dad, and my sister, Maxine. Hey, that's me! I am in sixth grade. My favorite class is Spanish. I like hanging out with my friends and playing volleyball, softball, and drawing. I am Maxine, and I am in kindergarten, and my favorite thing to do is hybrid and I like to go bike riding and dance to music. Today, my dad is taking Maxine and me to Greenwood Cemetery, one of the oldest cemeteries in the country. It was founded in 1838. It takes up almost 500 acres, and more than 500,000 people are buried there. We even have some relatives buried there. We heard that Greenwood is also home to a population of parrots, which is strange because parrots usually live in warm places like South America. We're going to try to find them today. I'm curious to know how they got here to Brooklyn, where they live in the cemetery, and what they eat. I also want to know how many live there. Maxie, what are you curious about? The poop. Okay, grab the binoculars and let's get going. Okay, I see one. It's like standing right um next to the nest. I saw it. It like went into the nest and then it flew back away. Oh, there's some more. They're all going to the same place together. We found the parrots right in the big Gothic arches at the entrance to the cemetery. The parrots built twig nests all in and around the arches. We found two rangers, and my dad asked them if the cemetery let the parrots live there. Actually, at one point, they attempted to make, like, platforms for them to make their nests on, and they took that nest down, and guess what? The birds were like, nah, we're going we're gonna to build it right back. They, they just came, came right back. Yeah. The only colony of green monk parrots in North America. Or where did they come from? That's what we're trying to figure they out. Come, they came out of a shipment um, through the harbor. They came through a boat? Yeah. So they and didn't they fly here. They came on a boat? Yeah, and then they, and they escaped. Where did they come from on the boat? Do we know? Uh, South America, I believe. Where they like Brazilian? Yeah. From Brazil. Like yeah. There's another one. It just went up. They're holding twigs and they're putting them onto the nest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're building a nest. They're building that big, huge nest. Oh, it's so green. I can see it's so green. Oh, it just went in through the hole. Uh Uh-huh. Do you not think I saw that? Because I did. We just got back from the cemetery and we learned a lot about the parrots. We both got to see them and hear them, which was really cool. I liked how colorful they were and the huge nest they built for their families. We learned that they probably got to Brooklyn after escaping from a boat, probably coming from Brazil or Argentina, which are countries in South America. Maxie, what did you learn? I've learned that now I'm a pet. 
Okay, everybody. This is Nola and Maxie signing off from Brooklyn. Remember to keep exploring and always keep it wild! And now for the answer to this week's riddle. I'm a fruit, a bird, and a nationality. What am I? Drum roll, please. A kiwi! Kiwi is a fruit. People from New Zealand are called kiwis. And the national bird of New Zealand is a kiwi bird. Well, that was fun. I can honestly say I even enjoyed working with my brother. Really? Thank you for joining us for the very first episode of Wild Interest. Stay tuned for our next episode when we'll be joined by Pro Bowl NFL quarterback Jake the Snake Plummer. We'll learn why yawning is good for us. (sighs) And we'll hear about a group of Filipino soldiers who live on a mostly sunken ship in the middle of the ocean. Until then, keep keep it wild. Wait, what button do we hit? This one. That one? Are you sure? Wait, no. This one over here. Right. Okay. We are really excited about how this episode turned. And we all... We are really... <laughs> I'm Nicole. And I'm him. <laughs> what happened this time? So sit back on your couch with your favorite double-decker chocolate cookie and listen in. <laughs> double-decker? <laughs> wait wait that wasn't the right button ah here we go sorry about that guys we'd like to thank scott gurian for production cambra Meniz edwards for sound design laurel ross for playing the fender Rhodes, and scott herzog trey lander and angela ray for audio engineering wild interest is a brain broccoli production